And he and I actually attended uh, Baylor University at the same time. I didn't know him. I think he was a year behind us. Kath went as well. But I've, I've followed his career closely. He's a talented musician. And so I heard he was going to be in D.C. If you've been at our church long, you've, you've sung his songs, Oh, Praise Him, Holy Yours, The Glory of It All, You Alone. Should be striking a bell for you. Uh, so he was at the Howard Theater in D.C. And the opening act, I didn't even know there was going to be one, but it's uh, a husband and wife uh, kind of folksy bluegrass duo. And they were great. Near the end of their act, the husband uh, said, okay, everybody pull out your cell phone. Let's, let's do this quick. Uh, I'm going to get in trouble for this, but here, type in this number. And I'll type in the number. He said, that's David Crowder's cell phone. Now, go text him. You know, he's about to get on stage in like 10 minutes, and he's, we're all texting him like, here, can you play this song? Can you do this? And I love you. And, you know, so here he is trying to get on. And he was a good sport about it. He came on and uh, acknowledged that, yes, his cell phone was ringing off the hook. And he starts scrolling down and reading some of them. And, um, I had told him, hey, can you, if you could do the Baylor football song you wrote, it's called Rise Up. That would be great. And he didn't. But Thursday morning, I got a text back from him. He said, hey, sorry, I, I couldn't play the song. Go Baylor. So, so if you want his cell phone number, I've still got it. I don't know if he's changing his number or what. But I've read, maybe you've heard about people who uh, either get used cell phones or find cell phones of famous people. And, of course, the famous people have other famous people because they all know each other, right? And uh, so they're looking through the list. Oh, I can call this actor or this singer or and wow that's pretty neat uh human nature being what it is we think it's pretty cool to be able to contact people who are normally untouchable right the elites of society are just a few buttons away imagine being able to call your favorite uh, professional athlete or actor musician politician whatever you're into whatever your heroes are if you could just call them Say, James Harrison, please don't leave the Steelers. I mean, whatever advice you needed to give them, or if you needed advice from them, that would be great, wouldn't it? Before you get to, uh, before you check out and start daydreaming about that, though, uh, and you may know where I'm going with this, I think we have something way better than that. Don't we? That the most powerful person being in the universe, the one who created you and everything about you, the one who knows every secret, every detail of every particle in the universe, the strongest force, the true source of goodness and truth. You can call him anytime, day or night, with any problem, big or small. That is the privilege of prayer. You don't even have to stammer around introducing yourself. Uh, hi, I'm Dave. I'm, I'm your best fan. He knows who you are. He knows you intimately, and he loves for you to call. Today, we'll be looking at Jesus' instructions on how we should pray, the model for prayer that we know is the Lord's Prayer. 
We're working our way through Matthew, if you haven't been here. And we're about halfway through the Sermon on the Mount. So let's read as you open your Bible or look on your outline. What might be the most famous speech in history, possibly the most familiar words in the English language, spoken out loud by more people in the history of the world. Matthew 6, 7 through 15. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Before we get too far into the actual content of the prayer, I want to address the fact that maybe you're like me, and maybe you struggle to pray. We have external reasons and rationalizations. I'm busy. I'm a, I'm a doer. I do things. I can't just, it's hard to stop. It's hard to spend time in prayer. Plus, I, I pray more than that guy, right? I should be covered. They pray for me on Sunday. I join in. It's hard to st- spend extended private time in prayer. But I think our real reasons, our internal reasons, whether we acknowledge them or not, are a little bit more troublesome. I don't think we're actually convinced that prayer works or we would do it more. Maybe your doubts sound something like this. They're not going to sound just like it because this is, this is an atheist writing to his Christian son. It's a book that I've been reading called Letters from a Skeptic, where a, a Christian professor of apologetics, in fact, uh, mails back and forth with his father, who is an atheist. And here's what the, the dad says about prayer. I don't see that prayer ever works. Not only this, but I don't see how prayer ever could work if God is all good and all powerful and concerned about us, doesn't he already want the best for us? And so wouldn't he already be doing as much as he ever could for us? So what are you asking for in prayer? For him to care more? He supposedly already cares as much as he could. Are you asking him to do more? He's supposedly doing everything he can. Are you informing him of some problem so he'll do something about it? He supposedly already knows everything. So you can't inform him about anything. You can't coax him to do anything. And you can't empower him to do anything. So what the heck are you doing when you pray? 
the whole thing seems like a total waste of time. That's an atheist talking, but I think some of our doubts may go along there. In fact, he sort of has this, well, let's concede sort of the Calvinist position that, that God is sovereign. God has set things. And so we may identify with some of those. Is it just a waste of time? Will God really change? Just because I asked. And I think we need to acknowledge that Everything in the Lord's Prayer is going to happen, whether or not you pray for it. You you thought about that? God is is going to be praised. His kingdom will come. His will will be done. He will provide, forgive, and protect His children. But I think the question is, how much do you want to participate in those things? There's a, there's a mysterious interaction between God's ordained, predetermined actions, what he knows is going to happen, what he sets in motion, and our prayers and our choices. And I'm not going to be able to solve all your questions and problems with how God's sovereignty interacts with our wills. Jeff Sackett can do that, Professor Jeff. You're sitting right there. But here, I've got a short answer for you. Even though God has ordained all things to pass, and he is the first cause of all things, he gives us still the freedom to make choices that have consequences, good and bad. And he wants us to come to him in prayer with the knowledge that our prayers will change things. We may not always get the answers we want. He is free to say yes, no, or wait, right? But he tells us to come and to talk to him. And it's certainly worth remembering that this is not just, in our text, it's not just anyone offering up a model of how to pray. This is God the Son teaching us how to pray to God the Father. So the context, as you see, sort of the introduction to the Lord's Prayer there, it's verse 7 and 8. Right, they remind us that we don't need to heap up empty phrases. God's not going to hear us just for our many words. And see, what Jesus has been doing throughout chapter 6 is he's saying, hey, don't be like this. And then he gives us a negative, and then he gives us a positive. So he says, don't pray for other people's praise. Pray in private. When you fast, don't do it so other people will notice and applaud you. Do it secretly. And later, we'll get to, don't, don't be anxious for your life. Trust God for his providence. The whole chapter is, is sort of this formula. And here we see the same thing. He says, don't heap up these phrases, empty phrases. He says, this is how you should pray. Your prayer should have substance and direction. And here it is. Now, I think some people think, well, all right, Jesus is just prohibiting long prayers. 
right? We just got to keep it short and uh, get right to the point. I don't think he's saying that particularly. Jesus spent hours in prayer. And he asked his disciples, couldn't you tarry just one hour? You ever prayed, tried to pray for an hour? That's hard. We're commanded to pray continually, in a sense. So I don't, I don't think he's saying just shorten your prayers. And asking how much you should pray is kind of like asking how much you should talk to your spouse. We need to remember that there's no extra righteousness to be won for long prayers, and there's no righteousness to be lost with short prayers. But I think the key to understanding this prayer is that Jesus says, pray like this. And so we we don't need to restrict ourselves just to these words, although it's perfectly fine to recite them. It's fine to do them in worship. Uh, You may have been in your head going with the whole, uh, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory when we got to the end of the prayer. Uh, So if you're wondering where that went, it's not in the original manuscripts. Maybe you should have a footnote in your Bible if it doesn't have that. But it seems like scribes added that later. But that's that's fine to add to your prayer as well. But what I'm going to propose and drive at today is that We see the Lord's Prayer as a model, as a kind of skeleton or scaffolding that we build around. Okay, each phrase of the prayer gives us an area that we can expand upon. So as we work through, you'll see how this works. And then at the very end, I've asked Frank Pugh to actually lead us like this. So we're going to immediately put that into practice. So as we look at the Lord's Prayer, we see two halves to this prayer. The your is the first half. You see you and your. We're pointing to God. And then the second half is us and our. I don't know if you've ever noticed that or not about the prayer. But it's so important to start with our prayers to God. We are such self-centered creatures that we risk Spending all of our time on ourselves. I've prayed plenty of those prayers. I don't know about you. We can miss the main point of prayers. Coming to God, relating, communing with Him, praising Him, getting a greater sense of who He is. This part of the prayer is probably the part that's the hardest and the most neglected. It's very easy to look at it as just kind of a prologue, right? Get that out of the way. Your will be done, kingdom come, cool. All right, here's what I want. But this has the opportunity, this first half, to be the most formative part. Tim Keller tells the story of a woman who came to him saying that when she would pray and tell God her problems, she was still so anxious and upset by them. But then she said she finally decided to spend 80% of her prayer time in adoration, in praising God and saying who he is. And she said, I suddenly realized the reason I worried and got upset and scared was because I didn't realize how great he was. And by the time I thought about his greatness and his wisdom and all he's done for me, when I got to the time of petition, I just said, here, why am I worried? Here, take it. So when we start with God's character, God's glory, 
and God's priorities. It, 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 I think it casts the shadow over the smaller things in our lives, as important as they may seem to us. And all of our desires, all of our needs have the uh, possibility of being idols, big or small, and to acknowledge God first, then we understand our idolatry. So the first part of the prayer is our address to God, addressing Him. And in four short words, our Father in Heaven, Jesus shows us the great paradox of our relationship with God, that He is both close and intimate, and He is far and He is glorious and unknowable. In a sense, we have the our Father, which says He is imminent. He is close to us. He has a relationship with us. He comes near. But then the other side, in heaven, and we're reminded of God's transcendence and how apart and far greater and above us He is. And we hold those two truths together. Because it's easy to err on one side. If we always think of God as distant and far out there and beyond us, we're not going to get a true picture of who He is. And if we always think of God as close and our, our buddy, that's not a true picture either. We need to hold those together. I love one of the songs we sing, Lord of Lords. It says, Lord of Lords, Prince of Peace, Abba Father, closest friend. It's got it all. It's got the, the transcendence in acknowledging Him as Lord. And then the closest friend. Let's hold those together, those truths. We have the privilege to call Him Father because we are His adopted sons and daughters. Now, a Muslim would say that you don't have the right to call God Father because we don't have the right to have that kind of familiarity and intimacy with the Great One. But Jesus says that if you believe in me, my Father is your Father. You have the same legal standing and family relation to God the Father as Jesus the Son does. We spent time, uh, actually our men's retreat back in February, was on the Lord's Prayer. And uh, I thought, well, I'm just going to rip off everything he says. But I decided not. Uh, there was a lot of other places I wanted to go. But we, we actually got to spend some really good time thinking about how our uh, pictures of our fathers affect how we see God. And I'm not going to spend time doing that. But knowing God as Father... Ligon Duncan explains that at the very beginning of the prayer, Jesus wants you to remember that you are not entering into the throne room by right. You are entering by privilege. You are not entering into the throne room by nature, by your nature. You are entering by covenant. And you are not entering into the throne room merely as a creature. You are entering as a child of God. our Father in heaven. After that initial addressing God, we are asking now for three petitions, three things. 
And in the Greek, the literal word order looks like this. Let it be hallowed your name. Let it come your kingdom. Let it come about your will. And then on earth as it is in heaven. I don't know if that's helpful to see, but I, I believe that last phrase, on earth as it is in heaven, we, I think we tend to lump that with the last petition there, right? That your will be done. But I actually see that as relating to each of the three previous. Because in heaven, God's name is perfectly revered and hallowed. His kingdom is established perfectly. All of his creatures do his will perfectly. And so we are asking for a reflection of that. We are asking for God to help us do that here. To, we spend our time hallowing, glorifying our own names and, and the names of people we admire and worship. We build our own kingdoms and the, the kingdoms of this world. We follow our own wills. And Jesus is saying, Imagine what it's like in heaven and bring that here. Pray for that to be established here. So the first petition, hallowed be your name, is more than just keeping the third commandment. Remember the third commandment? Do not take the Lord's name in vain. Certainly that's part of it, but it's more than just his name we're, we're asking for. The I am, Yahweh. God. It's not we're just saying that that's a great name. It is, but it's his name as under, understand his whole character, his person, his authority, who he is. So when we sing songs like your name is holy or glorify your name, it's not just that we're saying let's, let's bring praise to the name of Yahweh or Lord. It is saying that everything about you is holy, set apart, perfect. We glorify your whole person, your whole being. Uh, the, the word that the ESV translates as hallowed has the root hagiadzo. I know this is too much Greek, sorry. But, uh, but it can also mean consecrate, sanctify, dedicate, reverence, or purify. Now, I know those are all kind of religious, sanctimonious sounding words, but you get the picture, right? This is the place in our prayer where we offer our adoration, where we tell God how great he is, where we list his amazing qualities, not because he's a needy God, but because we forget and we live as though he isn't great and powerful. And when we praise him, when we give him the praise that is due, we remember and we do what we were created to do and what we'll continue to do throughout all eternity. Now I'm going to use uh, a little bit, as I, as I work through each of these phrases, I'm going to use the Westminster uh, Larger Catechism. And, and maybe you've studied it, maybe you haven't. I'm going to kind of put it in some easier terms because... You get lost in all of it says. Don't, don't write it down. It's going to be too much. Just sit back and soak it in. I think it's, I just want to use it as a way of summarizing each section. 
So the larger catechism 190, speaking of hallowing his name. I don't know if you know, there's a whole section on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, questions 190 through 196. And it says this, Acknowledge and esteem him, his titles, attributes, ordinances, word, works, whatever he is pleased to make himself known by, that he would prevent and remove atheism, ignorance, idolatry, profaneness, and whatsoever is dishonorable to him. I thought that said it well. In other words, the more we praise him sincerely, the more our unbelief, our idolatry, our dishonor are rooted out. We would love a church full of people who are trying to root out the idolatry in their lives. We do that by bringing our praise, acknowledging who he is. The second petition, your kingdom come. A prayer for God's work on earth. And, and I see this as, as twofold. We see this in a lot of theology. It's a prayer for the now that God would work through his people and his church now. And it's a prayer for the not yet, the future, for the end to come, for God to establish his eternal kingdom. When I pray this prayer, I try to use the time to pray for our church, the ministries we have, individual missions for ministries that I know of, for God to be working in and through them, to heal and to save. The more the church and individual Christians act out the mission of God and teach and live the gospel, the more earth becomes like heaven. We need to petition God to save people because we can't change an unbeliever's heart. He can. We can't make revival. We can't make true church growth happen. We can't make Christian ministries be successful without him. But even as he uses us as his means, To pray for the kingdom to come is not to wish that Jesus would get us out of here as quickly as possible, but that his beauty and his truth would reign here. We're, pushing, we're praying that God's kingdom will take the place of our kingdoms. We are asking God to set things right, to push back all that harms and destroys, to save all of creation. The larger catechism, let me give you a few points to sum up this part, to pray your kingdom come is to ask that the kingdom of sin and Satan be destroyed. That's a powerful prayer. That the gospel go throughout the world. That the Jews and the fullness of the Gentiles be brought in. This is the wording. That the church be furnished with gospel officers. That we would have enough elders and deacons and pastors and be free, the church would be free of corruption, that those still in sin be converted, and those already converted be comforted and built up. And number six, that Christ would rule in our hearts, and God would exercise his power in all the world. There's a lot you can pray for there. And now the third petition, the last petition of the first half of the your section, your will be done. 
started thinking about his will, my will. I don't know about you, but I've, I've sort of got my life mapped out in my head. I haven't told my wife yet, but um, I, I sort of know what jobs I'm willing to do. I, I know what areas of the world I'm, I would be okay to live in, right? I, I know what size house I need. I know what people I want to be around, when I want to retire. And I think you you do too. I think you've, if you're past the age of 12 or 13, you've probably thought about that. What do I want my life to look like? And we have some pretty solid opinions and convictions and, and they start to form us and drive us. I'm going to move towards that. That's good. God has wired us to go after what we value. But so praying let your will be done in my life. It can be a scary prayer. Because we know in the back of our minds, I mean, being sent to the jungle in Africa is within the realm of possibility, right? And we may not be equipped for that. And, and really, we might think that we might have a sneaky suspicion that God wants to to send us somewhere where we're going to be miserable. There's a much longer sermon about uh, the, the will of God that we don't have time for. And we could talk about um, the revealed will of God in the Scriptures versus His sort of uh, permissive will, His declarative will. There's a lot of uh, nuances to that. Um, but let's just make it easy. Let's substitute the word way or will. And so our prayers sound something like this. I know what I want, and I want to get my way in my life, but I submit to your way. I want you to have your way with my life, God. Ruin my plans if you have to. I just want to be faithful. Now, for the most part, I'll say that God uses the natural personality and gifts and talents that he's created you for. And if you're using those, that's probably where God wants you. On the other hand, I can't guarantee that God won't include very difficult things that go against your nature, maybe painful things in your life that may be part of his will, his way. Certainly, if Jesus could pray, not my will, but yours be done in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was facing torture and crucifixion. We can submit to God's will. So now the, the Catechism 192. Let me just sum it up. We are, here's what it says. We are naturally unable and unwilling to know and do the will of God. We are inclined to do the will of the flesh and the devil. God, take away our blindness, our weakness, and the perverseness of our hearts. Make us willing and able to know, do, and submit to his will with humility, cheerfulness, faithfulness, diligence, zeal, sincerity, and constancy. I don't know if you'll get to all those. I don't know if you'll be cheerful and diligent and zeal, sincere, but... Pray that because God's strength brings you there. 
give up my way and my will and seek yours. Now we come to our, our transition point. We begin to pray about our, our own petitions. Uh, Tim Keller, again, has got some great ways to explain things. After you are done centering your heart and mind on the fatherhood of God and his heavenly power and then submitting completely to his royal lordship by saying, your will be done, then you can go and start asking him for your daily bread and for protection and for provision. That's what Jesus is saying. All of the adoration part of the Lord's Prayer comes out to this climax, your will be done. Jesus says you you may not do an end run around that. Don't go asking about your specific needs until you're able to say to God, I submit right now to your lordship and every disposal of your will. So there is an order in prayer. I hope I'm getting that across. So here in the second half, we have three parts, and I made it easy with three Ps, the, the provision, pardon, and protection. And so this first part, provision. Give us this day our daily bread. And the, the most obvious picture that I get is the manna in the wilderness. Remember back in, in Exodus when Moses and the desert community are out there. It's a huge community, and God sends them manna every day and says, just gather enough for today. Don't store up. It's going to rot if you keep it for tomorrow. But it's daily bread. With our Costco-sized groceries and our stuffed pantries and our abundance, it's a little hard for us to empathize with asking for our daily bread, isn't it? Uh, we're more like, help me find some new trendy restaurant. Uh, I'm so glad that Five Guys has come to Leesburg. Sort of prayers. Right? Very few of us actually struggle for daily bread. And yet, the majority of the people on this planet still do. That is a real prayer to them. And that's good to be reminded of as we pray and to be part of that solution. But we also don't need to feel guilty about asking for our needs. We don't need to be guilty to ask for what we desire, to come to the Lord humbly. Uh, Jesus tells us, go ahead, be like the persistent widow. Remember in Luke 18, he says there was a widow who needed justice from a judge and she kept knocking on his door. And he didn't want to give it to her, but... She's knocking so much, I'm just going to give her the justice she needs. Jesus says, keep knocking. Be persistent in prayer. James says, you do not have because you do not ask. Sometimes I get so wrapped up about something that hasn't happened in my life or something I'm hoping for, and, and a couple days will go by and I'll go, I I didn't even think to take this to the Lord. It's not that I thought of it and didn't make time for it. I didn't even think. You'd think after 30-some years as a Christian and 16 years as a pastor, it'd be pretty automatic. But I would think, hey, take these requests to God. But no, I'd rather stress and manipulate and try to make them happen myself. The old 
worship song. Uh, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. There are some cautions here, though. And don't expect that what you ask for will automatically be given to you. We got to acknowledge God is not a vending machine. And there's some other cautions. James 4.3 says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Remember also that if you define God by how he gets with your program, you'll always be disappointed. If you'll never meet the real God. If, if God doesn't challenge your thinking, he's not God. If your God conveniently agrees with you on everything and just gives you what you need, what you desire, it's probably proof that you've made a God in your own image. Listen to the larger catechism, 193. Though we deserve to be deprived of all outward blessings by our sin, and we take and use things unlawfully, we ask that God would give us a portion of them, allow us to comfortably and lawfully use them, and find contentment in them. This is the section where we spend a lot of our time in prayer, and that's, that's okay. This is where if you're using prayer as a scaffolding, we, we, we mold those other prayers around it. We pray for our kids, our families, our parents, uh, our jobs, our friends, you know, to do well on our midterms. We pray for our sick family members. All of those things. That's where we put those. The second petition here in the second half is, is for pardon. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And I'm going to uh, put that together with the, the two verses after the prayer. Verses 14 and 15. Let me read those again. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, I used to wonder, I don't know if this resonates with you. But I used to wonder, why do we have to keep asking for forgiveness like on a daily basis? I mean, I was taught at a young age, and I still think it's good biblical teaching, that would, when I became a new creation in Christ and was saved, that all of my sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. So it didn't make sense to me, I think, to keep asking. I'm already forgiven. What's, what's that about? And I want to do this very quickly because um, we're running out of time. But uh, I could spend a lot of time on this, but there's this idea that you could, you could read these verses and get a very strict, uh, wrong impression that if there was one person you didn't forgive that, oh, I've blown it, I can't be saved, I'm not going to heaven. Or the converse of that is, if I just forgive everybody, I'm good. That's my ticket. I'm automatically going to heaven. It, Sort of on the, on the surface, that's what it sounds like. But I want to just challenge a little bit. I think the best way I can explain it quickly is Rich Coffin used to tell us there's a sense in which we're forgiven in a courtroom, in a legal setting. And there's a sense in which we're forgiven in the family room. Remember that, people that were around when Rich was a pastor here? The courtroom, the legal sense, is where we are declared righteous in the sight of God. And that's where 
Christ atones for us, wins our salvation, and we are declared just and forgiven in his sight. So that's salvation. That's what gets us to heaven. Okay, that's the courtroom. After that, as, as we're believers living our lives, being sanctified, then we're in the family room. And we're part of God's family. And that's where we're asking for that daily forgiveness. Yeah, we're, we're overall, all of our sins are forgiven, but we're still struggling with sin. And we're struggling to forgive other people their sins. And Jesus is saying that you need to be forgiving your brothers. I mean, I look at my kids, and if they're fighting, I want them to apologize and forgive each other, right? And that's what God the Father wants to see. And there's a sense in which if we're not asking for that forgiveness and we're not forgiving each other, God is displeased. And we don't have full fellowship with him. First John says, how can you say you love God if you don't love your brother? Um, just so you don't think I'm making this up to get out of a sticky theological point, let me read Westminster Confession. Part of chapter 11 says, God continues to forgive the sins of those that are justified. Remember, saved. And although they can never fall from the state of justification, we don't lose our salvation in here, um, yet they may by their sins fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repent. So does that make sense? I, I need to give you that sense where you're not losing your salvation, but you are, as it said, bringing God's fatherly displeasure on you. We don't want to be like the servant in Jesus' parable who is forgiven this millions of dollars of debt by his master and then turns around and you owe me a hundred bucks. I'm throwing you in jail for that, right? I think that's the picture we have here. And so this part of the prayer is where we confess our sins by name. We ask for the Lord's ongoing forgiveness, for the ability to turn away from our sins and change, as well as the grace and ability to forgive others. And so then the final petition. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. On the one hand, this doesn't seem possible. Let me, let me read James 1.13. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Okay, so God doesn't tempt us. doesn't really lead us into temptation. There's some understanding this if God does give us trials in our lives. But I like this idea that we are asking him, I understand it, is don't abandon us in our temptations. Be there in our trials. I think it's understood also with 1 Corinthians 10.13 where it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 
I don't know about you, but it's real easy for me to ask for deliverance from evil and temptation, but then I don't take God's escape routes. I don't take that escape that he's given me. I hang around temptation. I let my thoughts linger on my favorite sins. And I think what you're praying here is, God, help me to stop that. Give me the power to remove myself from those situations. We don't pray, bring on the temptation and puff out our chests and try to be spiritual heroes, man. I don't want that. I want to humbly pray for protection and guidance and safety. This is the place to pray for God to root out the ongoing sins in our lives, the addictions, the things we don't like about ourselves that are sins, but that we don't think we can change. And we pray here for protection from the very real forces of evil. As I close, I want to just point out one thing about this prayer. I don't know if you noticed. There's no place in this prayer for the cross. It's not mentioned, right? There's nowhere to thank God for sending his son for dying for us. The most important thing in our lives. And I hope you're about to remind me, well, that's because Jesus hasn't died on the cross yet. When he's teaching that, it's pretty early in his ministry, right? So it wouldn't make sense to talk about the cross yet. But I want to encourage you as we wrap this up that we are now on the other side of the cross. And to understand this prayer with Jesus' death and resurrection gives each phrase, each section, new emphasis and added depth. Right? Just think about our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. God being our Father. That before the cross, God was the Father of the Trinity, certainly, and the general Father of humankind. But it's not until Jesus died for us and brings us in to fellowship with the Father. Jesus said in John 6, no one comes to the Father but by me. It is through the sacrifice of Jesus we are made acceptable. And we can only call him Father through Jesus' saving work. The next part is let your kingdom come, your will be done. Well, Jesus' death and resurrection brought the defeat of Satan and the coming of the church. The kingdom is advancing and the church responds to the moral and declared will of God in the power of Jesus' blood. Give us this day our daily bread. Jesus is the bread of life. His body was broken and we take of that. We have a lot of physical needs and we ask for those things in his needs, but Jesus is our constant spiritual need. Forgive us our sins. That's the most obvious one. We can only be truly forgiven and saved and justified in God's sight because of Jesus' death and resurrection. And finally, Jesus' death is what delivers us from evil. We are delivered from evil because Jesus willingly died, defeated death, Satan, and evil on the cross. Do you remember the song we taught? At the death of death, 
love and justice kiss. We were born to sin. Only you forgive at your final breath, grace and mercy when at the death of death you died and rose again. I'm not going to close in prayer. I'm going to ask Frank to come up. And this is our extended prayer time. And he's going to use each phrase of the prayer. And you're going to pray along with us. Dave says there's no closing song today either. So, so let's uh, let us consider this prayer that uh, Dave has preached on. Thank you, Dave, for expounding this. May we pray it here this morning, throughout the week. Our Father, who art in heaven, Lord God, you are as Dave has said, you're you're transcendent. You are to be awed. You are totally different. You are truly other. And yet, you still made us in your image. You have made us to have relation with you. And indeed, Father, you have adopted us. Indeed, we have been adopted out of that courtroom and into your family room. We pray, Father, we thank you that we have a spirit that calls you Daddy. A Father who cares. Sometimes we've had earthly fathers who are good examples of what that is, and sometimes we've had not-so-good examples. But Father, we all have some understanding of your provision for us, your love for us in this picture. Thank you that you have adopted us. Thank you that you're privileged to call us into your family. Hallowed be your name, Lord God. Father, in many respects, all of these prayers point toward this one thing, Indeed, our whole lives, as the catechism would teach us, is to glorify you and enjoy you forever. We pray, Father, that we would live to your glory. We pray that even despite what we might do or say, that your name would be glorified despite us, despite our sin, and even that through it, that your name would be glorified. We pray, Father, for your kingdom to come. We pray that in all these things that your will be done. We pray that it will be done here in Loudoun County, in Leesburg. Give us a vision for what your will and your name being hallowed would be like if, it were, if Leesburg, if Loudoun County were like it's being done in heaven. Help us to apply that to our own lives. What would our lives look like if we truly glorified you? What sin would we need to deal with as individuals, 
as a community. Help us, Lord God, to glorify you in all things. May your will be done in us. Work your will. Build your church, Lord God, to do your will. Build this church, we pray, to do your will here in this town, in this county. And yet, Lord, this world still is not our home. We are pilgrims and strangers. We're ambassadors here, but we do pray, Lord, that you would come quickly. Even nature itself groans under the strain of sin. We, need, we do pray that you would deliver us in due course. Take us home. But in the meantime, Lord God, we need provision. We need our daily bread so that we can serve you without distraction, so that we can seek your kingdom first, knowing that you provide even as for the lilies of the field who are here today and gone tomorrow and yet are clothed more, in more glorious ways than Solomon himself. As you provided manna in the wilderness, so, Lord God, provide for us. And, Lord God, as we go through this world, we sin and we struggle. We, as Paul says in Romans 7, do those things which we don't want to do and the things we're supposed to do, we don't do. We need your forgiveness, and we thank you that there is no condemnation in those who are in Christ. And as we have received this grace, Lord God, give us hearts that are quick to confess our sins and quick to forgive others. May we certainly go to our brothers and remove the log that is in our own eye before we confront others about their specs. Lord God, lead us not into temptation. We're no better than Adam in that regard. We would do the same things that he did. Redeem us, Lord God. Help us. Give us spiritual eyes to see the ways which you have provided to lead us out of temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. Lord God, we will see one day, as Luther wrote, that one little word shall fail him. We pray that you'd protect us, Lord God, so that we might be ambassadors in this fallen world. May we be in it, but not of it. Change us, Lord God. Make us in your image. Renew that image, restore it within us. For yours indeed is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Yeah, it's not on there.